Thanks for pressing play. Welcome to the second part of an extraordinary, unfiltered, unfettered, unedited real dialogue with the legendary David Gergen. On this episode, we dive into the key themes of his new book about leadership. His book is called Hearts on Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. And we dig into how older generations can inspire, celebrate, and mentor newer generations. Why David is optimistic about the young leaders today who are working on making our future different. Why he cares so much about authentic dialogue. Uh, He believes, quote, we should welcome conversations that expose in thoughtful ways alternative perspectives. And why he is concerned about the fact that, quote, lengthy expressions of thought have given to tweets. David is a man who served as an advisor to four U.S. presidents, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. And he's the rare political leader to serve his country from both Republican and Democratic vantage points. Professor Gergen teaches public service, and he's the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. You've seen him on virtually every major news platform, and he's a regular on CNN. He's won two Peabody Awards for excellence in broadcasting. And also, at the end of our conversation about his new book, you'll also hear the first part of our conversation that we released a few weeks ago about the current situation in the world. And um, man, is he ever prescient about that. You're listening to Christopher Lockett, Follow Your Different. Podcast Magazine says we're, quote, the best business podcast, and some reviewers say we're overrated and not worth it. Whatever you call us, I sure am glad you're here. Now, you know, the truth about social media is that while it has done much good, it has also turned into a bit of a Frankenstein monster. And we all know that what um, gets shared on social media is often fake life. Well, my friends at Hallow App are for your real life. Connect with your real friends in real private. No ads, no bots, no censorship, no algorithms. Just you and the real people you care about. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com. That's HalloApp.com or search Hallow App on the app store of your choice. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Let me thank you for writing this book. I really enjoyed it. And it was surprising to me because when your publicists uh, reached out telling me about your new book, I just assumed, given your background, it would be, you know, about the world stage and the political environment and so forth. And of course, um, that's in here, but it's really not what this book's about. This to me, if I could say it this way, David, this book is a love letter to the native digital generation and an encouragement to them. And so I'm just curious, what made you want to write this book at this time? I felt very strongly that we were moving in the wrong direction, but that from what I could tell in the classroom, there were a lot of individuals in my classroom whom I thought the world of, whom I thought they were really impressive, and they had the capacity to change the world, and to change this country. So this was a, an attempt to call them and could to call them to summons people that would like uh, to get in the arena. Uh, I think they can make a huge difference, and it's going to be hard because many of them have you know college debts and the like. But it was a way. It was it was a it was a legacy book in some ways. Essentially, one of the messages I wanted to leave behind. And there's so many uh, incredible things in here. Uh, but maybe if I could go to uh, your chapter um, on turning adversity into purpose, and you share the Harvey Milk story as a catalyst for for what he did for change. Yeah. And so, could you maybe pop the hood on why uh, why you wanted to center uh, what seems to be a lot of this book on this idea? Uh, yes, because I think that um, there's a lot of suffering in the country now. I think a lot of people have lives that are not as fulfilling. Uh, as they once were there, you know, there's a lot of fear. And I, I think we need and can do it. That We can be at our best, you know, when, when things are tough. And I think there's a lot of evidence 
that this is a very tough period, and, and but we can draw hope from the quality of the people who are coming in these next generations. There are just some people there who just knock your socks off when you spend time with them, but they're, they're searching. How can I make a difference? You know, um, the, the, the guy who wrote uh, Who Moved My Cheese, Spencer Johnson, uh, he was a friend. And he told me, he t- told me once, never put leadership in, in the title of a book. And I said, why? He said, because most Americans don't want to be leaders. They like to be followers. They like to be participate, but they don't want to be leaders. Uh, and uh, and Spencer was pretty good about this. He sold 30 million books. Um, but nonetheless, I, I, I do feel that those of us who are older have a responsibility here to, to leave behind what, what lessons we've learned. It's one of these things where it's a you know it's a passing of the baton. It's a it's what you you've got, you've got to be willing. The older folks have got to be willing to give up power, and they're not doing it. I mean, look look at the three oldest people we have in Washington: Nancy and and, and Biden and Trump, and they're all you know they're pretty far along in years. Yes, and there's so much to unpack here. There, there's a section of the book you you write where you say how leadership is evolving. And you say the journey of Greta and the Parkland students and Malala and the organizers of Me Too and BLM show just how rapidly leadership is evolving. We are no longer living in a world in which leaders are only formed in our nation's most lead institutions. Then you go on to say those days are gone. Thank goodness forever. And then you end this chapter by saying, ultimately, we should welcome conversations that expose in thoughtful ways alternative perspectives. We need fresh thinking as well as fresh energy. Could you say more about why you feel so strongly about this? The, the danger is that, uh, one danger is that people retreat into their corners. Uh, and they, they, talk, they, talk to each, they t- talk to like-minded people. They go on the social internet, uh, they go on social media and they look for people like them. They, they, you know, we even have people who, when they buy houses these days and move, you know, move their families, People who vote on Republican go, try to move to red neighborhoods, and people who vote Democrat tend to be blue neighborhoods. We're sort, we're sort of separating out, and what we need is to create a sense of community and a belonging to each other uh, again. And that's what's going to be valuable. And why the younger generations can be so, I think, uh, make such a difference in this country is they are the most diversified uh, group we've ever had uh, in the United States. And there's a yearning to belong. To, to be there where the action is, uh, that a lot of the younger the baby, the um, millennials and Gen Z, uh, I think are well positioned uh, to take major major uh, responsibilities, whether it be in the digital world or the non-digital world. But what's really, really important is we talk to each other in respectful ways and understand our differences. The, the more we see how others see the world, the better we're gonna be at pu- pulling together uh, and having some empathy, there's so many people in this country right now who are hurting, who feel that their 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 lives are endangered, uh, and yet they have so much potential. And we somehow have to get them back to safety, and a real sense of responsibility toward building the country back. And so, one things I one of the things I sense you doing, David, and this is uh, I mean I admired you before this, but is really trying to be a champion for leading a conversation about the power of listening, the power of having real conversation. Uh, We live at a time where I'm sure you've seen the same reports that I have, where more Americans think other Americans are the enemy than anything else. And so, um, do you think, you know, and it's really the mission of this podcast is to restore uh, authentic dialogue where when somebody says something that's different than what you might think, rather than jumping on them, you say, Hmm, you know, that's interesting. Why don't yeah. you tell me more about sure. that? And so do you really believe, yeah, David, yeah. that we can begin to bring back uh, real conversation, authentic dialogue in, in America? I do. Uh, I think it's going to take take a while. We need to find more Zelensky's in our own population. We need to find people, more people of courage and accomplishment as Zelensky has been. But those are some role models. And we ought not to be afraid of role models. They can help us a great deal. Uh, one of the things that has been disturbing uh, to me, Christopher, and, and uh, d- depressing, if you think back upon all the different kind of um, crises we've had, and, and going back, the, the last role, the last heroes I can remember before Zelensky 
came out of 9-11. You know, we don't find heroes emerging from that interim period, which was a long time. We need, this country needs more heroes. We need more people we can look up to. We need people our kids can look up to. You know, our, our kids are really at stake here, uh, our families. And I think, uh, Christopher, if I may say so, um, one of the reasons I came on this podcast was that you had a reputation for really broadening the conversation and bringing fresh thought to it. And I thought, well, that'd be that'd be terrific. I'd like to I'd like to participate in that. Uh, so I appreciate you. You know, you're playing you playing your own role, playing your own role here. That's kind of you to say. Thank you, David. Sure. No, well, you deserve it. Well, thank you. It's so kind of you to say thank you. To that end. I sort of had an aha over the holiday season. I was thinking about the current situation in the U.S. And I was sort of trying to understand why the ratcheting up of all of the anger and all of the hate and all of the yelling, this continuous ratcheting up of this. And the aha that I had was that we see, and I, I, I say this like an idea, that we seem to have reached a place where politicians traditional legacy media and social media have figured out that in the near term, they can profit from anger and hate. They get more ratings that way. They get more contributions that way. And if, if we can make our side hate the other side, then we get more votes that way. And I, I began to wonder, are we in a vicious circle here where uh, all of these components, media, social media, and politicians are creating this horrible, vicious circle of sort of monetizing anger and hate. And and if their financial interests are uh, bolstered by, uh, if you will, monetizing anger and hate, how do we break this cycle? Um, well, we haven't found a way to do that yet, but your your description and your analysis, I think, is right on target. Um, there, there is a, we all know now, uh, that if you want to be heard in this country, what you've got to do is shout, shout louder than the person who's already has the microphone. And you've got to say things that are more vicious. You have to say things that are more eye-catching. And, and what, what that does is we see a real um, decline in serious conversation, a real decline in respectful conversation. Um, but I think it can be done I mean, just in the last 24 hours um, we had a visit here on the Harvard campus of Chris Christie, uh, the former governor of New Jersey and that sort of thing. And we said before the, before he started speaking, I was moderating the conversation with him. And uh, we, we told us that there were a lot of students in the crowd. And we said, could you please give him a respectful hearing? You don't have to agree to everything he says. You just listen and, and absorb and, and work with it. Uh, and I must say, the, we, we didn't have an ounce of trouble. They were, they, they, the students were all very respectful. They came up and wanted to talk to him after it was over. It is possible. We should not lose sight of the fact that there I, I, that there are real possibilities. And I, I think from what I've seen in classrooms over the last 20 years, that things are getting better among the students. It's just it's just in the outside culture that right now is is almost hopeless. So I'm 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 a short term pessimist. I think the next two, three, four years are going to be very difficult. But I've become increasingly a long-term optimist and, and the feeling that there are a lot of good people in this country who are sick and tired of this poisonous stuff, and they want to get to higher ground, and they can help lead us out of this. We have in every neighborhood. I can't emphasize enough. The emphasis should be not be on, on trying to be in the White House or being powerful and making a lot of money. The emphasis should be on living a, li- a good life in your neighborhood with your friends, with your family, and trying to take your neighborhood and make it a model for others. Yes. Thank you for that. That's great. The other sort of idea in this regard that I would love to bounce off you, it's sort of an interesting sure. irony or dichotomy, is that we live at a time where um, uh, real conversation, the ability to listen, to do what you and I are doing now, you know, pass the puck yeah. back and forth, um, yeah. has greatly diminished, and in some part because of technology and because of media. However, yeah. Yeah. podcasts are the only media, other than, of course, you and I sitting down in person or you in a classroom with right. students or you know people being together physically. But in terms right. of media, uh, dialogue podcasts that are unedited, that allow for long, thoughtful conversation, are really one of the few mediums left where people can experience 
this back and forth and this discussion and this nuance and so forth. And so yeah. I find it interesting that on one hand, the technology has helped make us yell at each other at scale like we never did. Right. But at the same time, am I naive in thinking that podcasting could be a big contributor to making people more uh, conversation yeah. aware and more empathetic? I, I think certainly podcasting can be a bridge. Uh, from from one culture that the, the one that we've been living in that is sort of descended um, to a bridge to something better. Uh, now, how how well that works out, I I don't think we know yet. I think people are still discovering podcasts, but the the reports are getting and you know the numbers better than I do. How many people are getting involved? What kind of what kind of audience ratings are people getting? Tell us a little bit more about that. I'd be curious myself. Well, the biggest podcast in the world reportedly is the Joe Rogan podcast, and they the reports say that he has about eleven million uh, people who listen to each episode. And as wow. you know, that would be larger than any any show on any of the major um, television networks. And then, of course, there are many other ones and you know, with a little bit of a modesty, we're, we're one of the more popular dialogue podcasts for business people. Uh And so uh, I think there is definitely a rise. I mean, the number of podcasts is exploding and, and more importantly, if I could say so, the biggest frustration I have when I see you on TV is you only get a few seconds or a few moments, even if you're on a panel with others, the show's half, the show's half an hour, the show's an hour, uh, and really, in that time frame, you're on the panel. We don't hear you much. As somebody right. who appreciates real dialogue, I can hear where they do the edits. And the most terrifying thing to me in traditional media is when the host says, well, David, we'll just have to leave it there. And yeah. I think, well, he just said something incredible. Why are we yeah, leaving yeah, it there? Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, there was an old, there's an old joke in, uh, uh, at NBC uh, with dear Andrew Mitchell has been a lifelong friend. Uh, of having her uh, open up an NBC nightly news broadcast by saying, well, the news is that Moses has come down from the mountains today with the Ten Commandments. And now here's Andrea Mitchell on the first three. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) uh, And so who am I to make a suggestion? (laughs) No, you want to keep pushing it. You ought to keep pushing it because it's, it's worthwhile. To be so bold, I, I would like to nudge you, maybe, if I could. Sure. Uh, I hope with your new book, yeah. uh, Hearts Touched with Fire, and in other capacities, uh, we see you more on podcasts because as wonderful it is, as it is to see you on one of the major networks, unfettered, open access well, good to, to your brain and your yeah. experience is what is what I think a lot of us want. Well, I, well, listen. I, I appreciate that. The truth is, I need to know more about the podcast world. I've only I've been exposed to it here and there, but I really haven't. But as I've gone through this book process, and and realized in the last twenty years, I, I wrote a book about twenty years ago and went through a, a somewhat similar process and talking to people. But podcasts didn't exist then, and they and they're they're now they're everywhere. And, and what I'm trying to do is figure out how can I I can now how can I now find the, the most interesting podcasts and how can I listen to them in a productive way or at least participate in them. If there's anything at all I can do to uh, support you in that, uh, I have my hand fully raised, David. (laughs) Okay. You're terrific, Christopher. I've I've enjoyed so much talking to you and I like the whole business about the analog. You've got to keep, you've got to keep exploring that idea. It's really interesting. The difference in the generations. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on, David? Just no, just to say thank you. Thank you so much, and uh, good luck with the rest of the book tour. And you are welcome back anytime. Thank you so much. Okay, okay, take care. Bye. Well, there he is, an American treasure and a living legend, David Gergen. I sure hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And uh, if you did, um, I'd love it if you shared this episode with the people that you care about. And we deeply appreciate your social media posts as well. I'd encourage you to subscribe or follow this podcast on your podcast player of choice. Also want to remind you that uh, Professor Gergen's new book is out. It's called Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. I really enjoyed it. You know, there is a, a heartfelt, earnest 
way in which he wrote this book that uh, really comes across as very, very human and endearing. And I think this, the, um, the stories will uh, touch your heart as well. So check out Hearts Touched with Fire by our guest today, David Gergen. All right. We would like to thank you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. It means the world to me and everybody involved with Follow Your Different. My friends at Hallow App are where your real friends, where you can share your real life and real relationships. Check out H-A-L-L-O-A-P-P.com or search Hallow App on your app store of choice. My friends at Malibu Milk, milk spelt with a Y, MalibuMilk.com, are the leaders in organic whole plant flax milk. I love this stuff. It tastes great. I have it almost every day. It's great in smoothies. It's great on its own. I have it with cereal. It's a small, tasty change that makes a very big difference. And when you go to MalibuMilkWithAY.com on checkout, type in Different15 for your 15% discount. I need to remind you that today's Oddcast is a sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. And all rights do remain disturbed. We are produced and edited by uh, the GOAT, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old geeks technical awesomeness and lockhead.com are built by uh, built maintained and and nurtured <laughs> by sarah knox and jamie j show notes by the legendary gm simon and the brothers bobus rj and ex take care of our web development and the handsome and talented Cedric Biros is responsible for our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheet to the wind. We record these oddcasts on squadcast.fm. If you want to record professional quality uh, oddcasts, check out squadcast.fm. Um, please teach dialogue, teach leadership. Remember the sage words of David Lee Roth, who said, you got to roll with the punches to get to what's real. Joan Jett was right. Listen to Lizzo. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this odd cast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Vladimir Putin. Sorry, Pootie. We just ran out of time for you. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with us. Please stay safe. Stay legendary. And until we're together again... Follow your different. Well, David, it sure is an honor to have this time with you. Thank you. It's my honor. Thank you. Now, I'm curious, maybe start with a very broad question. What's your assessment of the current situation in the world today? It's pretty grim, isn't it, Christopher? Listen, we've just had a cascade of crises over the last 20 years. It's sort of bewildering how many have hit us and, you know, some have come and gone and some have remained with us. You know, the latest one, um, Ukraine, uh, it's just really hard to see a good outcome in this. Uh, I think that's the question people are increasingly asking. We've seen we've seen all the horrible pictures and we've heard the views. Um, let's get on with concluding this. But it's not going to be as easy as it might look. Uh, my, I agree with those in the national security community who argue basically the most likely outcome in Ukraine is to have this go on for some time, maybe months. Uh, and then finally they become so exhausted, the two sides are so exhausted and their, you know, their, their bases and everything else are obliterated, their cultures are collapsing. They'll be, they'll be like punch-drunk fighters and uh, they'll just basically hang up the gloves, but at enormous cost. Uh, that, the chances of that happening, I think, are the, probably the highest chance, maybe 50 60% likelihood that's the way it's going to come out. Um, and cre- and, but increasingly, as we speak, uh, it looks more and more like we're gonna, this is going to be at the end for the longer haul. But the second, um, a, a second conclusion, might, and a different conclusion might be they actually do negotiate a peace agreement. Uh, Zelensky has been calling for that. You know, he's obviously got his back against the wall. Uh, and the Russians have every reason to sign it. But I think it's unlikely to happen because of Putin is just not going to go out humiliated. Uh, I th- and I think that's the, the great danger that he'll feel cornered. And I'd like to come back to that. If he feels cornered, uh, he'll lash out in some perhaps horrific way, like using this uh, tactical nuclear weapon somewhere um, that I think could turn the world upside down. So there is that possibility. I, I rated, I put it in about a 30% category. And the third option is, um, is that Putin himself uh, is going to face a collapse of his power back home. Uh, I doubt that will happen. It's unlikely, but it's possible uh, because, you know, he has a rising tide of discontent there. He knows it. 
and he's been unable to deliver any victories. This has all been pretty humiliating for him. So uh, I just think it's going to be get hard, be hard, unless he sees, you know, the only way out is to is to get this resolved and, and carry with it. If he, if we were to make some concessions, uh, the, the Ukrainians were to make some concessions to say, well, we're not going to try to join NATO uh, for five years or ten years or what some time period, um, and we are we're going to uh, stay neutral, uh, and we will allow, you know, we will sell our gas and oil elsewhere, people will accept that. If you did things that were somewhat, uh, I think, uh, pointed in, in Putin's favor, that would increase the chance of getting it settled. But right now, I have to say, Christopher, the odds are it's going to be a long extended uh, conflict and which may end badly. I, I wish a man in your position, having had the experiences and, of course, relationships and knowledge that you have, would be sharing something different with me. But... Um it's a sad state of affairs. Yes, I agree. I agree. Yeah, it, it is interesting. It's, it's been fascinating. I mean, this has us mesmerized as a people, I think. I, there's a lot of public interest in this. Um, and it may have one good out effect, and that is maybe it will bring us together as Americans. Um, maybe other Western nations will also get their acts together. You know, we're in a very dangerous time now, and we need to get our act together here in the United States. We've been self-immolating in all sorts of ways now over the years, uh, and we've been sort of, you know, blasé, blasé about it. We got to, we got to buckle up, buckle up. If we want to keep peace in the world, the the people who can keep it the best are Americans, and we really need to strengthen ourselves because if if we disappear from the world stage, if we're in retreat, the whole world is going to unravel. The world as we know it, and it could be a very dangerous place wherever you live. Yes. And one of the fascinating things, uh, David, on that component of it is, it seems to yeah. me as somebody who's been uh, watching as closely as I know how to in this situation, right. that in the very beginning, uh, Americans seemed to me to be very united in support of Zelensky in Ukraine. Yes. And yep. more recently, uh, there seems to be an emerging uh, part of our population who is actually now pro-Putin. We've had uh, political pundits people um, coming out saying pro-Russian things. We've had some music celebrities and so forth uh, sort of saying we should begin to listen to Putin. And so there seems to be the, the beginning of a bifurcation in the United States in that support. I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I, I hadn't realized it had gone that far yet, but I, you know, I, I've seen signs of it. And I think the degree to which people move over to the Putin side will only prolongate this war and very, very likely would politicize it. If, if we have a Republican view of how to settle this versus a Democratic view, that's just one hell of a bad way to run a railroad. Um, it, it will, it, we will pay a price for that for a long time to come because we'll never settle down. We'll never get sort of back to a, a, a smoothly running democracy again if we keep playing games. So I think we're, I think we're on the edge already. We came into this on the edge uh, as a people, and it, it, we ought to be doubling down. And I, I was very gratified in the early weeks. I thought Americans were pulling together. It reminds me of what you're saying. reminds me a little bit of what happened in 9-11. You know, when George W. went to, to that pile of rubble, and, uh, and, and they, they uh, he's like, I, you know, he, he talked to those workers in a way I can't hear you, but the world will hear you. Um, we came together then. There was a there was a time frame. It was short, but there was a time frame when we were honoring those firefighters and those policemen who went up those stairs to to their deaths, while other people, civilians, were trying to get out and going down the stairs. And those people went down as heroes, the ones who who died there in 9/11. Uh, and we honored their memory for a long time. And then we began to politicize it. It became more difficult. We can't go down that full path again. I mean, Z uh, Zelensky is a true hero. Uh, whatever else you want to say about it, he's a true hero. Putin is a thug. You know, he is a murderous tyrant. And let's just face it. Um, and there's a, there's a big, huge difference, not just in policy, but in the morality of where people stand. Thank you for that. If I think about 9-11, um, of course, I remember it vividly, I think, as most Americans who are yeah. alive then do. Yep. And regardless of where you were on the political spectrum at the time, my memory, uh, per your point, David, 
when he stood there at ground zero and then all the things yep. that happened shortly thereafter, it felt like to me as an American who loves this country, that we were united, that a hundred percent, if, if, if yeah. not a hundred percent, certainly yeah. close to of Americans stood behind our president. I think regardless of what you think about him or your beliefs about his politics, yep. he did a great yep. job in those moments. Uh, Giuliani did a great job in those moments and many others yeah. did. And we were united. Yeah. How do you, um, I agree. How do you view President Biden's uh, approach since this war in Ukraine began as comparison to maybe how uh, Bush handled 9-11 in the beginning? Well, there, there, there are differences. I, I think uh, both of them, pr- frankly, were statesmen uh, and both deserve credit for that in the early days. Um, Bush didn't try to go out and hit everybody. He, he was, it was a pretty focused attack uh, on the attackers. And, I, and, I, and he was also very protective of Muslims in the United States. You remember he, t- he told Americans to calm down about the Muslims. Let's understand they are, these, are, these are our f- f- neighbors. These are our friends. Um, and I thought he was very, very effective at that. Um, he, later on, I, I, you know, the world now knows that there were mistakes made. There were a lot of serious mistakes in intelligence, how we ever got as far over and thinking there were nuclear weapons there that Iraq was you know, had and was working on and Iran was working on. I, 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 as we look back on that, that was Colin Powell's worst moments in, as Secretary of State when he, was, when he was briefed by the intelligence community and given things that turned out to be lies. Uh, and he, he was so, I can't just tell you how upset he was about that. It, it lived with him almost every day of his life thereafter. That, um, and, and I don't know how we got there, but it left him hanging out. And then we went, went to war in, in the Middle East in ways that were, um, you know, frankly, uh, the, the, the early decisions they made were great. But when, once we got into Iraq and didn't, didn't pull up and get used their forces the way we should have, uh, you know, we, we were pretty much stranded there and it ended badly. And has exhausted us ever since. On on Biden, I, th- I think the approach has been somewhat. I give him a lot of credit for his statesmanship. You have to say that Biden has kept us out of war. He has he's kept us away from committing troops to the ground. Now, whether that turned out to be the right decision as a policy, I think is still uncertain. And Biden's place in history may well turn on how this all turns out. Uh, if it turns out to be a long, bloody mess and it never gets really resolved and we have all these kind of dissident movements left behind, he's going he's gonna to get hit on that as not, not being tough enough. On the other hand, if we get, get a negotiated peace, he's going to get a Nobel Prize. Uh, you know, so um, I just don't I think we don't, we don't know, Chris, or I, you know, how exactly it's going to come out. I, I, there are a couple of things that I learned earlier in White Houses, if I might might say a few words about that, a couple of things on the on the foreign policy side um, is um, first of all, just never corner your opponent like a Putin. When John F. Kennedy was facing the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, and he gathered the his advisors, uh, the man who had been his ambassador to Russia and knew Khrushchev well, or, or his name was Llewellyn, urged Kennedy, "Don't corner him." Give him a way out, because if you corner him, he's going to respond like a snake. He's going to be vicious in coming after you, and you just don't want to let that let that happen. And I I think that's what we're playing with now. We've got to hold out some possibilities that Putin doesn't have a future in the world, but that the Russian people have a future in the world, and we ought to distinguish between those two things and be friends with more with the Russian people. They are being dragged into this by this dictator who's running the show and their, their show. Uh, and you just, you've got to be uh, aware of that. Well, you know, and as a side note, David, it's interesting you make that comment about the Russian people. I'm somebody who yeah. spent 35 years in the information technology industry and around startups and mm-hmm. innovation in Silicon Valley and such. And one of the things right. that's happened over my career is the development of incredible technology talent and engineering talent in the former Soviet Union in many of these countries, mm-hmm. Russia and Ukraine being great examples. And many tech companies have uh, incredible offices with incredible people doing incredible work in both countries. And so as somebody in, in this industry, it's very painful to see the impact of 
what I know to be and, and have worked with people from these countries, in these countries, to now be suffering this when our economic and collaborative um, sort of relationships had felt so strong for so long. Yeah, that's that's an extremely interesting point, Christopher. I'm glad you I'm glad you made that, and I hope your voice will be right there in the center of things uh, when this is over, and we're trying to figure out what to do, how how to heal, um, because right now we we all of us think of the a lot of the well a lot of us think of the Russian people as puppets of the state or as sort of somebody who's gone along with a madman. You know, it's like they're like Trumpsters in, in effect. It's, and I, and there's growing evidence that's not the way most Russians feel. Most Russians are very, very ticked off at, at Putin. They're beginning to see, you know, Putin has hidden a lot of this, and he's had all this disinformation, that he's had a disinformation campaign of his own uh, that has worked well. So the Russian people have been misled. And it, I don't want to go too far with this analogy, but there's, there's, there is a parallel between what's been happening on the right in this country on disinformation, helping to create a, like a whole separate group of people in a different mainstream of all their own. And what's happening now with, with, the, with the Russian people being fed all this disinformation. Hmm. That's an interesting connection. Do, do you care to um, say more about that, David? Well, I'll probably be skewered with what I've already said. <laughs> well, I won't skewer you. I'm just interested in what you have to think and what you have to no, say. No, no, no. I appreciate, I appreciate that. Uh, look, I, I, I do think this points to the fact that in these, with these new technologies, we have, we have greatly strengthened our capacity to inform and to enlighten. We've also greatly expanded our capacities to mislead uh, and to deceive. And, you know, the, the technology is fairly neutral, don't you think, Christopher? It's how you use the technology that matters. Yes. And if the, if the, if the Russian people can contribute and work with Silicon Valley, uh, when, when, and we can have some healing and we can send some Russian students um, to the United States to study and we can send some American students to Russia to study, that, that ultimately that would be a good thing. You know, and I can tell uh, you, David, as somebody easy. who's worked with Russians and Ukrainians in the tech industry yeah. for the bulk of my career, I would like to see um, more Russian and Ukrainian entrepreneurs in our country and an increased willingness in our country yeah. to uh, build technology products with uh, folks in these countries. I agree. That would be that would be terrific. It, it's going to take some time to persuade Americans. You know, you know how we think about the Chinese now. We think that they send students here. Uh, they're all here to spy. Uh, and, you know, a lot of there's a lot of pressure on universities to check out, check them out and you know, follow them up and try to figure out who they really are. We're going to see a lot of the same thing here with the Russian people. If this comes out and, and Putin is uh, humiliated at the end, we're going to see uh, a lot of hard feelings. If we could have a piece that, that came out of this in a sense that both sides really needed to put down their weapons, that would be really, really helpful. There is an additional element here. I think uh, I may say so, Christopher. Another lesson that I that I learned was that at least I was there in the Clinton years and part of his national security team for a while, um, and it, it became apparent then that when the if the United States really wants to negotiate negotiate from a place of strength, which we usually do, we want to negotiate even trade deals from a position of strength, but certainly national security deals. And that is, it, it matters if you keep a club in the closet. The, the way to solve problems is not to, to go out and fight about them. But when you sit down at the negotiating table, the other side has to realize, you know, if, you, if you're deceiving us in this, if it doesn't go well, if you mislead us, we've got a club in the closet. We, at last resort, we won't, don't want to use it. But the only reason we haven't intervened in this Ukraine thing is because Putin has nuclear weapons. Uh, you know, that's the only reason. I, I don't know where that's going. There was a there was a fascinating piece in the New York Times uh, today, the front page of the New York Times, which I commend to you and your many, many listeners. Um, it was about nu nuclear weapons and uh, and the fact that the there's now a great deal of concern in Washington, growing concern about whether Putin really could use nukes. He's used them elsewhere. The, the nuclear weapons um, field has changed. There's a lot more uh, innovation going on. So we have a lot. And we used to have great big, huge you know, nuclear weapons to obliterate you know, half the world. Now we've got these much smaller ones, which are called tactical nuclear weapons. 
and they can be fired off. You could get you could you could shoot that, that all the way to California if you were if you were knew what you were doing. So there's a real danger of you know one of the Russians if they get cornered, uh, uh, acting in such a way that Putin wants to, to to fire off a couple of these nuclear weapons. That's going to be hell to pay. You want to keep a club in the closet, but you sure as hell don't want to use the nukes. Yes. Now th- this this is something I've been fascinated about since the war began, which is how do how does the White House. Uh, how does the president and uh, his advisors think about these sort of lines? That is to say, we have taken currently, the U.S. has taken a position that says we are not going to participate in this war actively. We will not have a, fly, yeah. a no-fly zone that Zelensky has asked for. We will not put right. boots on the ground, etc. However, there's a whole series of things that we will do, which I think are, are commonly known, whether it's sanctions and, of course, economic, yeah. uh, political, military support. And so... How do you determine where to draw the lines of support and under which conditions you would move those lines? That's a very, very tough question. I don't, I don't think anybody knows. If I, I, and I do believe that when, when this is over, if it, if it turns out badly, one of the questions that will be raised is, why did we draw that red line about sending in troops? Was that a smart idea or was that not? Typically, you don't want to tip your hand like that. Um, but, you know, one of the fears coming out of this is going to be how China responds to what what uh, what occurs over the next six months or not. It's very clear that, that Putin um, uh, looked at the crumbling of America's position in Afghanistan and, and, and found in that a weakness that, that he believed was there. Uh, and that increased the likelihood of him going in. I, I, you know, he, he was overconfident in, go, in going in because he thought America was weak and he thought he was much stronger than he was. So, David, um, I hate to and, interrupt you, but I want to make sure I yeah. fully understand. You think what, what I would call, and if you think this is unfair, please tell me, sure. the horrific outcome in Afghanistan, the failure of the U.F. In, Asga- in Afghanistan of late, is a contributing factor to what bol- kind of bolstered Putin into moving into Ukraine? Yes, I believe that. And, I, and you'll find a lot of um, people in the national security field who, who believe that. I think that, the, sadly, the Afghanistan was one of the turning points for the Biden presidency. I think it really undercut him. After that, it was it, because it was such a strong moral argument. The United States should not leave any soldiers behind. Uh, that we should not leave any of the interpreters behind, especially, and their families. You know, those people put their lives on the line for the United States. And when the time came for us to get out, we didn't. You know, we have a view that in the military, our military, you never leave anybody back on the battlefield. And there was a real, very real sense among a lot of our soldiers, especially the veterans who came back, and I, because I talked to a lot of them, and uh, I, I try to work with veterans to get them to run for office uh, in, the, in the Congress, and uh, I'm part of an effort, and I'd be love to talk more about that if you'd like. Um, yes, please. But the, um, well, uh, I, I, I first came to Washington when the, when the, when the uh, World War II generation was running things, and I, I came to have a lot of faith in that crowd, um, they they struck me as one of the finest generations we have had. Tom Tom Brokaw, you know, called them the greatest generation, and that of course st- that nickname stuck. And you know, we moved on from the greatest generation to the World War to the uh, the baby boom uh, generation, and uh, that baby boom population is just about ready to leave the stage. But I think that the overall it hasn't been what we hoped. Uh, there have been a lot of disappointments. Um, and you don't lay it all at their their your doorstep, but if you look at the way we ended up with the what the the legacy of the World War II generation versus the legacy of the baby boomers is night and day. The World War II generation left us as the strongest nation since the ancient Rome in terms of political power, economic power, military power, cultural power. The baby boom generation, which I, I there's so many of them that I really admire. Uh, I'm a sort of a preemie for the baby boom generation. I feel a sense of responsibility for what's gone wrong myself. And, you know, we, we're leaving the stage. We, we need to get off the stage faster, and we need to do more to prepare the younger generation, the millennials and Generation Z, 
they're going to be running the, the country here in a matter of a few days' time. We ought to be training them up to be civic leaders, to, to accept and embrace lives of service and, and lives of public leadership. They need to get in the arena, get in the fight. This is too important to stay on the sidelines. Be that person in there is making a difference in your community. It doesn't. You don't have to be in the White House to do this. A lot of the best work in America goes on in neighborhoods and in communities. People where people where people work together across lines, and that's what we see need to see more of today in America. We're at our best when when the chips are down. We're at our best when we're really really under. You know, it's we're we're in existential emergencies. We've had four or five in our in our in, in the life of our republic. And except for one, the one leading to the Civil War, we succeeded in overcoming adversity in every single one. That's who we are as a people. We need to remember that and get on with it, to get on with repairing and rebuilding this nation because the world needs a strong America, and we need a strong America. Yes. Thank you for that, David. I also, and you talk about this in your book, which of course we do want to get to, but um, yeah. one of the things you talk about in the book is how the new leadership, the new generation is using digital technology to communicate. Yes. And if I could, uh, uh, let me just share sure. a thesis with you. Good. Well, you're the expert on this. You're the expert on tech, so I'm, I, I, I will give you due deference. But <laughs> let, tell, me, tell me what you think. I'm really interested. So we just published a piece on this, which I can share with you if you like, but the thesis is essentially Good. this. I would love to see it. That what's yep. going on here is... Um, uh, roughly half Americans are um, born uh, that are Gen Xers, baby boomers and above. We call them native mm-hmm. analogs. That is to say they grew up in an era where their Analog. lives weren't centered on technology. Then if you're yep. approximately 35 or younger, Gen uh, Z and the millennials, you have grown, you've come of age as a digital yep. person. And our argument yeah. is that those folks have a primarily digital experience of life and their secondary experience of life is a physical or analog experience. And as a result, yeah. um, they are a radically new breed, a new category of human. So that's kind of our first thesis yeah. point. And then our second one, yeah. as it relates to what's going on today, is that one of the things that we are witnessing that most people don't realize is the first native digital war fought by Vladimir versus a old school native analog war fought by Vladimir. And what we mean in specific is, and you really talk about it in your book, Vladimir has been very savvy about using social media to communicate directly about empowering his citizens, his troops to communicate digitally and our basic thesis there, David, and you tell me if you think this resonates, is that as a result, um, Vladimir's ability to mobilize the world in support of Ukraine and against Russia is unprecedented in history because the scalability, the instant access of, of someone being able to live stream bombs going off in their city, we've never seen this before. We saw it in the beginning of the Arab Spring, but now what we're seeing is What's happening in the digital world is putting pressure in the analog world and creating a huge advantage for Ukraine, pushing major corporations to stop doing business. Governments didn't do that. People protesting online did that. Um, the, would the government have yeah. been as supportive of Ukraine if hundreds of millions of people in, in Europe and the U.S. and beyond wouldn't have been protesting and pushing the governments to support the Ukraine? And so... Here's the net net. We believe that history will mark this as a strategic failure when for the first time digital technology empowered one nation to produce results on the battlefield while the other nation didn't even try in the digital world. And so I'm curious um, how you think about that. That's fascinating. Uh, it's really, really interesting. And I, th- I think there is a great deal of truth to it. If I may sort of analogize um, you know, what's been happening domestically when, when like, with Black Lives Matter. Uh, that has been primarily a response to the oppression as seen or systemic racism or whatever you might want to call it, wherever you are on that argument. But it has allowed, Black Lives Matter has been able, able to take advantage of the technologies that are out there, these new technologies, and rally people to their cause, to their banner. The same thing has happened. Uh, and, and they've had the, the, the biggest demonstrations in history 
uh, over over uh, civil rights. They're much bigger than what we've seen before, and much more diverse. You see, in a lot of demonstrations that are going on now in the last two or three years, when we when I was growing up with the civil rights generation, it was uh, it was mostly led by blacks, and when they had marches, there'd be mostly African Americans in the marches. Uh, now you see a lot of diversity in the marches with Black Lives Matter. There are a lot of white folks, white young young people who who signed up. Same thing happened with the Parkland kids coming out of um, the, the gun shootings in in, uh, in Florida. Uh, you know, David Hogg and others who, who put themselves together on that. They used the technology of their of that new technology to mobilize people as well. And you find and you find that with the women's movement technologies. So there are a lot of ways things are changing. One of the things that we're not quite clear about, Christopher, yet, and we'll have to wait and see, the Ukraine does suggest that when your nation's survival is at risk, you do sign up more easily. Um, but what we've learned so far is that people sign up in the digital world. Whether they're willing to do tough things as a result of that, I think we're, I don't think we yet know the answer to that. We don't know, can you ultimately turn a movement, a social movement, based on the based on the uh, social media, which mobilizes and gets people signed up. But do they stick it out? Do they have the perseverance to, to see it through yes. and fight to the end? Because it's not, people are not going to just flip over, you know, because you're in the streets. Right. Uh, it's got to be something more sustained than that. And that's where I think, uh, you know, I think what the leadership, you know, of this new generation is going to be so in, in, engaged in this question of how do you mobilize people to do good things in the world, uh, and how does the internet best help you to do that? That is a really, really important understanding. We need more data. We need more training. Frankly, there are a lot of people who are over the age of thirty-five who need to be trained up uh, to to be able to manage these technologies. I feel I need to I need to call in my grandkids to teach me how to use this stuff. <laughs> yes, I, I can relate a little bit. Now, if I was um if I was President Biden, David, having sure. advised so many presidents and um, achieved what you have achieved, if I was President Biden and I asked you to come see me and, and I said, you know, David, what should we, the United States, do to bring this to a peaceful resolution as quickly as possible? What might you say? I would say we need to be in the forefront of helping the Russians and others as a people get back on their feet as long as they're in a peaceful mode uh, and they're not going to turn on us. We need to do that. But in order to do that, in order to get that kind of help, we're going to need persuasion on the part of the president. Americans are not ready to try to help the Russians right now. We have no, uh, that would be almost a, a very difficult task. I, I had a really interesting conversation uh, with Richard Nixon shortly before he died he called me, I, I, I'm not sure about what at this time, but we eventually got over with reflecting on his life, and he told me the story of the Marshall Plan, uh, and it's relevant today. And basically, when the Marshall Plan was proposed by a Democratic president, Harry Truman, and supported by George Marshall, he was his Secretary of State one of, and the most popular man in the country. But the Marshall Plan was not supported by the American people. It only had 18% support in the first Gallup poll. And it, which, which meant that Congress was not going to pass it. So Truman and his, and his group of Democrats called in Nixon and other Republicans to begin the bipartisan uh, talks, negotiations, if you would, to, to uh, why pull together the Marshall Plan, mo the most important initiative, policy initiative, certainly in, in the last 60 or 70 years, and reflected so well in the country. But because of, of that, what Nixon was so proud of was that it had been so unpopular, but when he got to the House of Representatives for a vote, House of Representatives controlled by Democrats, that he, Richard Nixon, stood up on one side of the aisle as a freshman member of the Congress, stood up in support of the Marshall Plan, put up there by a Democrat, and there on the other side of the aisle was another new member of Congress, John F. Kennedy. Nixon and Kennedy both stood up together. And what Nixon told me is, when the chips are down, Americans stand up together. And I've always believed that since. I do think that's part of who we are, our natural heritage. I think we saw a lot of that come out here on this whole question of the Ukraine. 
And uh, we ought to be proud as Americans we've come to their support. Whether we've done enough is a different question. But we have come to the support of the Ukrainians, and we've been more united. I hope the spirit of Ukraine can live on. Yes. Um, beyond uh, beyond this, because it's like, it's like 9-11. We will accomplish so much more if we stick together. Yes. So I'm curious then, David, given your comments, which make a, a, a ton of sense to yeah. me, we've seen uh, President Zelensky with his smartphone on Twitter, on, on Instagram, speaking yeah. in Russian directly yep. to the Russian people. Of late, we saw Arnold right. Schwarzenegger come forward and speak directly to the mm-hmm. Russian people and actually have that video deployed on a Russian, a popular social media platform in Russia that apparently, according to news reports, got a lot yep. of uptick. Why wouldn't President Biden come forward and say to the Russian people things along these lines, that we stand with you, that when this is over, we want to support you, that we want to continue an economic and social relationship with you, et cetera, et cetera. Why, why wouldn't he speak directly to the Russian people as Zelensky and Schwarzenegger have? Darn good question. That's good advice. He should do that. Um, I, I, I frankly think he needs to talk more to the American people, too. You know, people don't understand why we're doing what we're doing, what's going on over there, what, why does it matter? This is an educational moment. You know, leaders are essentially educators in some basic way. And learning how to use the medium of your time is the way good leaders uh, respond. They use, you know, this social media hasn't been available uh, for generations. But now that it's out there, smart leaders turn to the best innovations that are there. And this goes all the way back in our history to, you know, the early days of the Republic when newspapers, you know, started coming out and became mass, mass newspapers. And it changed our culture. People started using the newspapers to make, get speeches out, to get their points of view. You know, the Lincoln's Gettysburg Address went out in the newspapers. His, his inaugural addresses went out in the newspapers. And then, and then along came radio. And Franklin Roosevelt turned to radio as a new innovation in his time and was a master through his radio addresses, uh, you know, to, to the whole country. It was said that when FDR went on went, and went on, spoke to the country, through radio at night, prime time. You, if you were in the streets of Baltimore and you were walking down the street on a summer night, you would, with windows open, you would hear every single word of that speech as you passed by houses because everybody tuned in, and and the fireside chats were, were just famous for that. And then along came television, and television. When John Kennedy won in 1960, he turned to Pierre Salinger's press secretary and said, "We wouldn't have won without that. We wouldn't have won without that." And it was and it was television. That became the channel that you needed to master those. There are best presidents. Who who were the best presidents or most memorable presidents of the last 40 years, 50 years? John Kennedy on television and Ronald Reagan on television. Both of them use that medium. And now what we see is social media. It's it's coming in. It's having even more impact, impact because it's open democratizing. And it's so global. And it's quick. It's very quick. Uh, are things, are things, it's, it's difficult to lead sometimes because things are moving so fast. Uh, but the, the, the leaders who conquer social media are the leaders who can make the greatest impact going forward. Well, and one of the things that we mentioned in the uh, uh, post I, I shared with you about is how fascinating it is that there were reports that several weeks before the war, Putin made it illegal for his soldiers all of whom are native digitals, all of whom, or the vast majority of whom would have smartphones. He made it illegal for them to have smartphones. So essentially yeah, he... I didn't know that. Whether he realized, yeah. I can send you the uh, report. You, you, you're the one who told me that. Yeah. Yeah, you're the one who told me that, right? Go ahead. But then yeah. at the same that's, time... That's really, really interesting. Right, so he's, he's, yep. he's, he pulled out of the native digital war, so to speak. Whereas Zelensky, on the other hand, is promoting himself and encouraging his troops and his people to share. And yes. so why wouldn't President Biden pick yes. up an iPhone and look into it and and speak to the American people on Instagram or on TikTok or on Twitter and speak to the Russian people and speak to the Ukrainian people directly in the way that, for the example you just gave, uh, so many other presidents have used yeah. new communication yeah. technologies. Yeah. Yes. Well, it's good. Well, Barack Obama, when he came in, what did he do? He, he went he went essentially on television to talk to people in the Middle East and try to convince them that we were not anti-Muslim. Uh, and it, he made a big, genuine effort and made some progress. So I, I listen, I feel overall that one of 
Joe Biden is that uh, this is still a uh, ter- great um, forum in which to speak to people. It's, the, the bully pulpit is still alive, it, but it's no longer, you know, in a television studio. It's not in so much. It's more in the social media. And I do think that the Obama people, if there if there's one thing they haven't gotten right yet, it's messaging. They've had a hard time figuring out how to persuade people, and and sometimes they seem sometimes it appears to people on the outside that they're hiding him. Let him come forward. I've I've seen him do press conferences. He does perfectly well in press conferences. You know he he did well in the debates. You know the guy the guy knows his stuff. But why they you know. The other thing uh, I must say, Christopher, is I don't understand why he doesn't do this at night. Why he doesn't do more uh, things at night? Because you put on, you you do something at two o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, and you have only a tiny share of the audience. So I think that going on social media more than he does, and and it's a way to explain to people what's going on, would be very very helpful. And I, you know, I think you're right. That it's something that. The White House seems, pre- seems preoccupied with the policy decisions every day. Yes. And they haven't paid enough attention, as best I can tell, uh, to the message side. And I think you could argue, whether you love him, hate him, or somewhere in between, that yeah. um, President Trump uh, has shown himself to be a master at using social media. And maybe, let me make a statement and see whether yep. or not you agree or disagree that there's a really good chance he may not have become president had he not been on Twitter. Oh, I think that's right. Then he had a massive Twitter uh, following. And I think what he did, it wasn't as if he was delivering truths so much as he was de- delivering sort of a join the party or join the group and to join us as a resistors to the, to the current uh, culture of the United States. They broke off. And we've, we've had, you know, frankly, we're, so, we're poisonously divided now. It's gone on for so long. And the Trump years... Um, as, as much as you say he was able to do something few others have done, and that is to command a com- political party essentially to kiss his ring um, or someplace else. The uh, but the it was there was a sense that I mean Trump did. You got to hand it to him. I didn't think it was for a good cause, and that's why I'm I'm a little restrained in the way I talk about it. Yes, fair enough. Now, um, what do you think? the average person should be getting themselves ready for as it relates to this uh, off the top. You talked about how, what a challenging time we're in where we've had increasing political strife in America prior to this war. I had be, I yeah. personally had become increasingly concerned about uh, more escalating violence in the United States around the midterms, the, the next election, the bifurcation between left and right, the, the angry rhetoric, the lack of dialogue. People like you are very rare who serve both Republicans and Democrats. We see that very rarely today. And so we've had all of that. In addition, of course, we've all suffered COVID and continue to suffer and and try to deal with COVID. And now this horrible situation where we haven't seen anything like this since the beginning of World War II in Europe. And so how would you like the average American, the average person um, to kind of think about this and kind of deal with this? Um, I hope I hope we keep it in our memories. Uh, there's going to be a real temptation to move on to the next thing. We, we're, you know, it's a pandemic. No, it's inflation. No, it's how much it costs you at the gas pump. It's going to be easy to lose track of because things are happening so fast in our country. But there are some things that are so fundamental. We need to keep remembering them. That's the reason you know you have institutions like churches and synagogues because they keep memory alive. Um, and we need to keep memory alive of what it has been like to come together finally in the last few months and pull together as best we can for Ukraine and getting and, and then moving on, but realizing there are some things bigger than some of the disagreements we've been having as a people. And and we, we need leaders, and the, the president's got to be right out at the forefront of this, but the Republicans have to participate in this too. It's really, really important that the leadership of the Republican Party get on the same team try to work with the Democrats as much as they can. It's all equally important that we look to the new generations to bring us new energy, new understanding of technology, new ways of doing things to refresh ourselves. We, we, we were getting stale in the way we were approaching some of our problems. 
We need one of the reasons we ought to welcome the younger generations is they will have imaginations that many of us who are older no longer have. You know, we've had our day in court. We need a new new generations to come forward and to save this country. Thank you very much. Yeah, I want to say one other thing. One of the you're you're the way you come in on the technology argument. I really hope you'll continue on that on that road. That's very fruitful. And you know, they're, they're, for a lot of younger people, they get it. But the older generation, like mine, you know, we don't, we don't get it as easily or completely. And I think it, I think you're making some terrifically interesting points. Thank you. Um, it's we find it fascinating, me and my writing partners, that um, to the best of our knowledge, nobody has applied what we call this native digital, native analog lens yes. to what's happening in the world broadly and in business. We write a lot about business. Uh, one of the predictions we've made is we will see more CEO firings and more destruction of public company market caps in the next five years than we've ever seen in history because half yeah. of America is native well, digital. Well, and we well. see a situation where Goldman Sachs, by way of example, mandates that their employees come back to work and only half of them do. Uh-huh. And so native analog CEOs in the in the uh, Global 2000 companies don't seem to understand that half of the world and the future of the world are really truly a new category of human beings who live a digital first life. Huh. I, uh, I, I think that material is really, really interesting. I get that. I, I don't get how the technology works very well, but I get what you're just saying. Uh, and, and I think it's an important message, the analog uh, world versus the other. Uh, you know, it, 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 there's a lot of truth to that. And the numbers... Who are you know, moving on from analog are just going to dramatically increase, aren't they? I mean, we're going to see more and more and more. There are psychologists today who are saying things, David, like if adults who want to have relationships with younger people today don't meet them in the digital world, they'll never be able to communicate them because kids won't come to us. We have to come to them. And yet we have parents who restrict screen time. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You know, there was a, a really interesting piece. I, the Globe, it's in the New York Times, I think, today. is an editorial by, by a woman who's done a lot of research about the, the impact of um, the digital world on, on uh, sexual sexuality and how people think about it. And ultimately, people, you know, if you're not careful, people become lonelier. Well, and on that front, it's funny. We've done a little bit of research here. If, if what we're reading is right, the um, sexual activity amongst younger people is at the lowest level recorded by the Kinsey Institute. Huh. And that, um, to put it bluntly, uh, it appears that many young people are choosing to have sex with the Internet as opposed to uh, analog sex with each other. Oh, wow. Well, I'm not sure I want to know how to do it with the, uh, how to have sex with the internet, but nonetheless. Neither do I, but <laughs> so I agree with you I like analog, I like the analog version. <laughs> I'll stick to the analog. Thank you. Yes. 